Welcome to Income for Baby Boomers. If you want to learn about exciting new businesses each week from other boomers who speak your language and have started a unique and profitable business from home, you have come to the right place. For those who would like to try some of these low investment opportunities, stay tuned. We'll help you get started in your own profitable adventure. Now with your host and entrepreneur, Ken Queen. Folks, I'd like you to meet Steve Richardson, problem solver, motivator. He's written two books. One, Become a Better Leader. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing great this morning, Ken. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to speak to you. Steve, I know you, you've got all kinds of background there that, that can help our folks. And I know you're working uh, as an executive director at the college right now. Uh, how do you pronounce it? Cer- it it's uh, Cerritos. Cerritos College Foundation, right? Foundation and raising money for education there—that's fantastic, a worthy cause. And you have a, a great background on turnarounds, turning nonprofits from losing money to making money. <laughs> so that, well, yes, that's a great background. Let, let me ask you this, Steve. Let's just go right way back just for a second. As far as your entrepreneur interests, how long ago did that start, or what was your kind of your background? It start you, you were the kid that always had the lemonade stand, or well, I, I don't know about that. It, it started definitely in my twenties. Um, I had started off with a um, this is an interesting pathway, but I had started off with a degree in biblical studies, and uh, was following the footsteps of my grandfather, who was a minister. So I um, pastored a small church for a few years and decided that that wasn't quite what I wanted to do. And so actually two other family members and I decided to open up a uh, a religious bookstore and gift shop back in the, uh, wow, this would have been the very, very late 70s that we Mm -hmm. did that. And so that was really our first entrepreneurial adventure. And that was, that was a great adventure. We did well. And, uh, Own that. What year? So that was, you were 20 something, you said? Yeah, I was, let's see, I would have been about 28 or 29. And your first run at being an entrepreneur was successful? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we had a we had a good run. We just got tired of retail after a few years and uh, decided to move on and do other things. But bookstore is a tough business, I think. Now I had 300,000 used books online at one time, and I was one of the biggest in the world. Uh, so it was a little different than you know dealing just with local people. But uh, things really changed quickly with Amazon, and you know, it did. so a lot of things didn't work anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it used to work. Yeah, fortunately, I was out of that business before Amazon hit the scene. <laughs> okay, super. And then, uh, what was your next venture? You've shut that down after five or six years. Yeah, did you say yeah we, well, we probably owned that for about six or seven, and then we decided to help a uh, family member who was in the roofing business, and so we started a roofing company. Well, how's that? How'd that go? <laughs> that that one not so well. We yeah. learned a couple of things. Uh, first of all, just because don't ever go into roofing well, was your first. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I was happy to get out of that particular business, right. but you know, we just learned that just because somebody has an expertise or somebody knows how to put on a roof doesn't necessarily mean you should be in that business. And so um, we we learned a lot in that. We learned what. We shouldn't have been doing and that we should have probably never been in that business. So we, we got rid of that one in a hurry. That was about two and a half years. Let me ask you this question. If you had to do the roofing business now, mm-hmm. with all you know, could you make it successful now? I don't think so. I, I just don't think it was a good fit for our particular skill sets and expertise. And then the other issue was is that there were so many things that are against you in the in the trades as a subcontractor. Even if I thought I could make it go a second time, I just don't know if I'd put myself through that. 
I got you. You you burned once. You 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 had you had your experience, but that's great. You you realize, and this is a big thing. I think people go after the money instead of after what they love, and they end up like you did yeah. <laughs> in a business they hated. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know the the great thing about it is I still have a lot of war stories from those two years. So you know there were some great learning moments there that help me now. <laughs> that were transferable. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely yeah. Every failure, every lesson. I mean, people think that, gee, you know, I meet people and I'm dealing with baby boomers and then someone tries to tell me they've had, they're 65 years old, but they really don't know anything. I'm thinking, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, if you didn't learn a lot of right things to do, you sure for learn some things not to right. do. Right. <laughs> Absolutely true. You've got some use, useful knowledge here. Don't underestimate what you have. And some people need the book on what not to do. And I think, you probably even admit this too. I think probably our greatest learning experience is when we stumble, then we have to figure out how to make it work or get out of there and do something else. But we probably learn more from the mistakes sometimes than we do from the successes. Oh, I, I really do agree with that because I, I think success is nothing more than a series of failures that we've learned from and that, uh -huh. that we've become <laughs> successful from. Right. Yeah, that, that's the struggle. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's go on. Let me just ask you: At that time, were you reading any motivational books that helped you, or it was? Uh, did you have any mentors that were particularly helpful? Well, you, you know, one of the big mentors in my business life, uh, interestingly enough, has always been my father. All right, so good. during that particular venture, we did have a lot of interesting conversations. On, you got close to him. Uh, yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, and yeah. and so that that, that was great. In terms of books at that particular time. I can't think of one that was in the era of the of the roofing company. There are a couple of later ones that when I shifted out of that. Okay, let's go to your next business. Well, no, after sure. that, it seemed that we had enough business experience and some successes, some failures, that I really branched off into more of the less business consulting. And I started working with um, companies that were basically family-owned that wanted to move to the next level. And, mm -hmm. and that was actually helpful because we had, we had done some of that successfully. Then what had happened was that my, um, my biblical educational background and the amount of time I had spent working with churches and also my business background blended together in the decade of the 90s that churches started to really expand and grow and they started having all the problems of a normal business. And so I found a very creative uh, niche in walking into churches that were in serious trouble and helping turn those organizations around. And I did that for most of the decade of the 90s. There's a few I would have wished you got to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I even though I don't do that actively anymore, I still have people come up to me and say, well, here's the card of my church. You can, you're welcome to come and uh, do some work. And I said, oh, I, I don't do that anymore, but thanks. <laughs> During that time, were you reading any books then yeah, at that point? There were, there were um, you know, one little book that I really, really, really liked by Donald Phillips. And it was called Lincoln on Leadership. And uh, he, he had decided to write a little book on uh, Abraham Lincoln's leadership style. And it was really, really helpful to just moving through organizations where people had had bad experience and morale was low. And, and how do you pull people out and really set a vision? And that particular book used Lincoln, who had to really manage a country in a tough, tough time. And so uh, I really liked that book. And it, was, uh, it stuck with me. 
for for a long time. Right, because I have books that I that I read way back, and I still pull them back out and yeah. and read them again. You know, uh, uh, Power of Positive Thinking. I mean, oh yeah, you know, it's yeah. an old book. It's been around a long time, but I just bought it uh, a couple of weeks ago. I thought I don't know where my old copy is, and I think I missed something. <laughs> so, yeah, and, so and, and then there was back yeah, it. and then there was another book I came across. It was called um, Managing Transitions, and and I forget the author's name, and I wish I had it this morning. But but when I picked up that book, I said, "Huh, here's a guy that actually has done this and knows what he's talking about," because I had mm-hmm. done quite a few transitions by that time, and uh, I always found that that was a very very practical and insightful book. Where we're going with this too is is that. You can learn anything on your own and probably never have a counselor, but that's going to be expensive and maybe a long journey. Yeah, but uh, so can shortcut this thing with, with yeah, but with help. But I think I think what's important for your listeners is um, that things build on each other. You know, who would have thought that at 22 years old, coming out of a Bible college, pastoring a small church, that you would transition and actually own a retail business? And that that retail business would give you the at least the uh, courage to open a roofing company. And then on the heels of that, to be able to transition to actually helping other companies improve what they were doing. And then to have it all circle back and mesh what that early education was, which you didn't think was going to be applicable, and have it all meld together and then produce a decade of really positive work for you. Fantastic. Yeah. So everything is a stepping stone. People have to realize that that uh, it doesn't matter what happened. It's how you interpret what happened and how you're going to use it today. You're going to repeat the same mistakes. Have you learned something from it? They're all stepping stones or sinking stones. Yes, yes, they are. <laughs> if you use them wrong, but they're there. If you already know you went down that roofing road, you don't want to do it again. For example. One of my best friends is a roofer, so I, it's a tough business, but he was quite successful. Oh, I, but so I am enough. the first one for successful roofing companies. I, right. I give them extra hand claps, you know, when, <laughs> Absolutely. when I walk by. So it's not, it really wasn't the profession. It wasn't your profession, and uh, that's the key there, but, but everything counts. A lady that I was interviewing who's famous, I don't want to say too much, but she was really trying to get a hold of me three or four times a day I was doing the interview, and then finally... Um, I emailed back and said, she said, I got to be prepared. I got to be prepared. And finally emailed back and said, you've prepared all your life. <laughs> I'm going to be picking on you and who you are and how you became who you are. So don't worry about it. I mean, the questions won't be hard. I mean, they might be hard in that you might not want to share everything, but you know the answers to my questions. <laughs> there won't be any questions that you couldn't answer. Right. You know? And I, I kind of took the position that, uh, you know, when Ken calls, we'll just have a nice conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean... You know, that's how we're going to uh, learn from each other and, and help others to hear what we're saying. You know, that, hey, this is working, that's not working. And just the mindset is so important in, in life that if you see everything from a glass uh, half empty, then it's going to be that way. I mean, you tend to multiply <laughs> what you feel, right? Right. You know, it takes a, it takes a combination of, um, of passion and the ability to risk, but also that same ability to to measure things out so that your risk just isn't crazy and right. and you know you have enough life experiences you start to measure that all out and that helps you to make the next step really important in other words don't write a encyclopedia write a mini book <laughs> yeah and find out if anyone's interested 
But if you spend 20 years writing the encyclopedia and no one likes it, you wasted 20. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a that was an interesting thing on this whole journey of um, writing a book on leadership because uh, people had been on me for quite a few years that, Steve, you ought to write something on that. And I kept poo-pooing it and saying there's enough books on leadership. And it wasn't until one day I was sitting out, my big roadblock, and, you know, sometimes people don't do solopreneur or entrepreneurish things because there's roadblocks. And the roadblock for me was I don't really like writing. And I thought I was going to have to write a big chapter. Mm -hmm. And so I finally gave myself permission that my chapters could be short and I could just say what I wanted to say. The thing that allowed me even to get through the first book and write it was the fact that I just told myself that each chapter is going to be about a page and a page and a half. Once I did that, the book flowed very quickly for me. And so I had just created my own roadblock of what I thought something should be rather than what mm-hmm. it needed to be. Okay. And then when once you reached a point where you thought it was finished, did you get an editor? Or how, or how did you well, go? you know what I did at that point, and this is probably where the next stage of, of life comes in. At the time I wrote the book, I was... I guess I was just around 58. And so I'd been running the foundation for quite a few years, and I had already kind of set a plan in motion that around the age of 66 or 67, I was going to transition away from doing that and do something else. And so Mm -hmm. I decided that, what would you want to do, Steve? What do you want to do? I said, well, probably what I would enjoy doing would be to do some consulting, do some speaking. But to do that, I probably needed to have a different level of credibility and and do some things that people have been bugging me to do, like write the book. And so I kind of came up with a game plan to write the book on leadership, to follow that up with a book on on being a good board member because I worked with so many nonprofits, and then Mm -hmm. maybe a third book on how to become a better fundraiser and try to do that over a period of about five years in preparation for when I decided to step away from working every day. So I just kind of stuck to that, but with every good plan comes hurdles, and my hurdle was writing and getting over that hurdle. And so, <laughs> But it's great that you could be successful at something you were afraid yeah, of. Yeah, so we got over that, and then I took the route of uh, self-publishing because uh, that way my plan all along was to self-publish and get a couple of books published, and then if I wanted to take the adventure of maybe finding an agent and getting it nationally distributed, we'd, we'd do that. So it's just kind of a step. By step. Yeah, we got you. Now, just back to editing for a minute, because often this comes up. Uh, yeah. Did you get someone to edit, or did you edit yourself? Well, I kind of took an interesting approach, and and I want to preface this by saying that we haven't received one comment comment from anybody back that there were big errors or grammar in our book. So the yeah. editing came out well, but this is how I did it. When I do a first draft, I go through and do a first serious edit and basic rewrite myself. Then I give that over to one person I really trust that has some knowledge of the subject, and they read through it. And then, fortunately, I have a great team of people that I know who are just just volunteer their time to edit. So I have about two or three editors on the first book that work through that, all the uh, variations of that before I send it off to the publisher. So I did not use a professional editing service or anything of that nature, and we did great. So apparently that's not necessary. That's that's good. It's good to know if you have that type of circle of people that can help you. I've got you. I guess one of the crux of what I was trying to get at is some people think they can self-edit. might not be a good idea. Oh, no, don't self-edit. No, and the other thing I do is um, you also, besides edit, you need to have a circle of people who are going to be readers for you of your finished edited galley before you go looking to publish it. Because, you know, what you think you said isn't always what people hear you said. 
Right. Yeah. They get a different point across than what you were trying to put across. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So you have to you have to do some testing. You have to have some readers that you are going to give you honest feedback. And when you kind of go through that process, then then you have a comfort level that okay, I'm saying what I wanted to say, and people are hearing it appropriately. So okay, now you've got it edited. You're ready to go. You're going to self-publish. Where did you go? Amazon or what? Well, you know, I, I thought about that, but people had encouraged me to not only do a um, a Kindle or digital version, but to do a soft cover. And so to do a soft cover, I did a little more research, and I actually happened across a self-publishing division of Thomas Nelson Publishers called Westbow Press, and, and I worked with them on the first book because I wanted the soft cover to really look good and feel good in people's hands. So being a self-publisher, you had to pay them in that case? I sure did, yes. All right. Was that costly or...? I would say that it was, for what I was trying to do, it was reasonable. At no point did I think, wow, this is really expensive. expensive. It was a cost that I thought that given time, we could recoup that cost. So what did they do with your book then? Where did they advertise it? How did they get your name out there? Or did you go on a bunch of talk shows? Or how did you get it off the ground? Well... Uh, this is still a work in process, so when your listeners hear this, they, they can know that gotcha. this is constantly evolving. What we did, not only was Westbo my publisher, but they would also distribute that out to Amazon, Barnes & Noble. So so the book's available on Amazon and all mm-hmm. those outlets. And then we decided just to do a grassroots, rather than, you can spend a lot of money a week if you decide you're going to do some serious promotion. And since my real goal was not just to sell books, but was to start to build a platform for future consulting and speaking mm-hmm. along with the books, we decided to do a grassroots social media. And I had not really jumped into the social media waters. And so we set up a YouTube channel. We did a few videos. We um, went to Twitter and LinkedIn and fan page on Facebook and a blog, which I don't do as regularly as I should, but we took the social media approach to try to keep expenses down and also to build a grassroots uh, following. And I would say that to some extent over the last year and a half, that has been good, but I would also say it's been slow in building that. And the interesting thing is that um, I've been able to do quite a few podcast interviews with people like you, Ken, and that's opened up a very interesting audience that I never even knew about. And getting bigger every day. And getting bigger every day, and I never knew about it before I wrote the book. And so that's been a really nice uh, serendipity that I didn't expect that we could expand people that we know and people we have a chance to talk to. And the great part about that is, is when you start taking action, then you'll see some new action you would never found if you didn't do something to start with. Exactly, exactly. And so it's a snowball. Yeah, and so it's always surprising and it's always very pleasant when it happens. And now, did they organize your whole social media, the publisher? No, we did that on our own. Oh, you did it on your own. Okay. So when it came to marketing, they didn't. I mean, if you were going to rely on them to market, that wouldn't know. Well, well, what happens is when when you decide to go down the road of self-publishing, they'll do marketing for you, but but that becomes an additional cost. And so you just have to make a decision as to where you're going to spend your monies on marketing. Okay. Well, a lot of my listeners, they probably want to do something on a shoestring. Yeah. So your method would be the way they probably want to go. Yeah, yeah. Except today, we don't call it on a shoestring. We call it grassroots social media marketing. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I got that phrase from my uh, daughter who happens to be a marketing professional. <laughs> so, oh, okay. so. 
All right, grassroots. Uh, well, I, it's great because you know it's it's new words, but describing an old thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, it is. You know, word of mouth is what it boils down to. Well, let's go back here for a minute. You were helping various organizations to make their structures more efficient, yes. and especially nonprofit organizations. Right. And then, what caused you to go to this next step to the college level? Well, I had a very busy decade in the 90s, and, and uh, I was a little tired, and my family thought I was really tired and, <laughs> and thought I should not be taking on any more big turnarounds. And so an opportunity came up on the heels of finishing a turnaround in, in 1999. There was a um, community college that wanted their foundation to grow. And so um, I said, well, I think I'm interested in that. So I took that on you know, as a regular full-time job. And I've now uh, been there 15 years and we've had a great time of growing that organization. And it has also allowed me to continue to do some consulting and speaking on a different basis than I did it before. It's been great. Once again, it allowed me to bring a lot of my uh, expertise that I had with helping nonprofits and all nonprofits have to raise money, so that was not a tough transition. And also my business background on some other business-related things that the foundation does. So it dovetailed very nicely for this last 15 years. And your next step is to go and be a speaker and just be a writer and, and a counselor? Is that is that your next step here over the next couple of years? Or? Yeah. You know, I'm, I I just had my 61st birthday for all those boomers out there. And, right. and um, I probably will stay with the foundation um, until I retire. And, and I'm looking at that around 66, 67. And so I'm just trying to build this platform of books that I've written and um, slowly expand my connections on social media and through other venues so that when I do retire, I can go do that on at some level that I would find meaningful. So let, let me take a business for a minute that you're familiar with and, and just figure out what you would do with it right now. So, okay, I am starting a medical mission business. I'm going to start a charity uh, not, or a nonprofit, and I want to get medical supplies from different manufacturers of, you know, outdated pills and, and medication and bandages or whatever. And I want to get this off the ground. This has been a dream of mine. I want to do this. If this is what you had to do, what would you recommend they do? First off, I would find out if I had a, a circle of people that shared my passion at all or supported me personally. Secondly, I would check to see if I if there were going to be legitimate relationships with pharmaceutical companies or medical supply companies that would be willing to donate materials to me to, okay. to do this. So looking for suppliers first. Okay. So so your circle of supporters, then then a group of suppliers. And then once I had determined that I had those two things, then I would probably start down the path of legally forming my nonprofit and examining what that's going to cost. And then I would flesh out what I think the donations are going to be, my circle of supporters, and what the real cost to deliver this in other countries is going to be over a three-year period. So do a three-year projection. Absolutely. Okay. Always right. do a three-year projection. And just before we go any further, what are the, uh, I mean, I know it depends on his background, his connections and so many things, but if he really has a passion to do this, what are the odds this uh, person is going to make it in today's environment? The odds of making it are more related. I mean, if, it, if it's filling a real niche, then it's just a question of staying power. If you can stay long enough doing something valuable, it will eventually 
solidify itself. And, mm-hmm. and so most people fail because they don't have staying power, whether it's in a for-profit or in a non-profit environment. They don't have enough personal financial resources to float it for three years, or they don't have enough supporters that share that vision to support that for a three-year period. Because it takes – you just can't expect people to become aware of something to really start delivering your mission in less than three years. I mean you you have to be able to be self-supporting for three years to go into this to start with is what you're saying. Yeah, or have or have identified support mechanisms for that three years, yeah. So someone to sponsor you for your salary, you're saying. Yeah, or, or something. Enough to yeah, leave, live on or something. Whatever like you're going to do there, yeah. I mean, if you're doing it full-time, you're going to need that. Absolutely. So is there a group of people that are each going to give you $50 a month to make this thing work right. for, for three years right. and, and make, make a commitment to right. that? Right, or is there a corporate donor that really likes your vision that is willing to sponsor it for three years? You know, you know, how would I find that corporate? Well, if let's just take our medical supply. Let's say they're not only willing to give you equipment or things that they can't do on the market, and they and you they give those to you in donation. But as part of their corporate vision or corporate citizenship, this what you have in mind is a good thing for them. A lot of large pharmaceutical companies have foundations that are connected to them, and so you could probably apply for a grant from the foundation, so forth and so on. Now. I have to be honest on the grant-making side. It's the chicken and the egg thing. Normally, to get a grant from a foundation, you already have to be an established nonprofit, you know. And so, startup grants are are very uh, rare. C. What, what is it? C five D one or what is it? Five hundred one C three. Five hundred one C three. And so, you know, you have to be careful of the chicken and the egg syndrome that can keep you from doing that. But if there's a corporate sponsor who wants to be in their corporate citizenship and they have marketing dollars that they think are good for that, then yes, there, there's ways to do that. So if you set up a legal organization and you've got approval for 501c, so they know you're really serious here, and if you go after 100 different pharmaceutical companies, you may very well find one that would support this if, if, if you focus on that, would you say? I, I would. If, if you're willing to invest the effort to contact 100 ones and, and talk to the right people, yeah. So you just keep going till you find the right one? Yeah. What people don't understand about a nonprofit, even though it's a wonderful mission, whatever your vision is, nonprofits and the whole fundraising aspect of it is a specialized type of sales. And so all the rules of sales does apply. Okay. And so you still have to do that. Now, the the only uh, difference – well, here you're outbound. I can see this is outbound sales if you were to compare it to a sales company. Yeah. Going after the pharmaceutical companies is an outbound outreach where probably a lot of charities aren't – I mean, some of them are. They telemarket and so on, but uh, that's probably not a really good model, I don't think. I mean, with all the rules and laws against them, and you can't. No, I, well, no, I wouldn't I, telemarket. No. Yeah, I think that would. So, when it comes to actual people donating, then you have to reverse this, and you need it all inbound. Absolutely, absolutely true. So, okay, I get the pharmaceutical company says, okay, I'll sponsor you for three years. You're going to put your name on the uh, as a banner across your website. Yeah. You, you would recommend getting a website, I would imagine. Yeah. Yes. So you're going to use them everywhere. This is my main sponsor. Uh, they're helping, you know, in all these ways. Now, I don't know how that takes away with any other pharmaceutical companies also giving because they're so prominent. But how would that uh, work in the mix? Do you think? Well, it, it depends on the industry, but there's usually a healthy level of competition in industries. And so, if one person is doing something that is noteworthy, somebody else might want to hop on that wagon too. No, oh, okay. So it, it could be an attraction, not a negative. I it think could so. Be a benefit. 
I think so. Right. I've seen it work that yeah. way. Okay. So other pharmaceutical companies say, well, if Bayer Aspirin thinks it's good, it must be, whatever. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. So you get credibility from the mm-hmm. pharma, any pharmaceutical company that sponsors yeah. it. Okay. And, then, and then also at the same time, you do have to be expanding your your circle of people who actually want to support you on the long term. And so now how do you go after them? It is a long person-by-person process. If you have 10 people who are supportive of what you're doing, then you really have to encourage them to talk to 10 people that they know who might be supportive. And they might have one or two that are, and those one or two need to talk to 10. So you have to, you have to multiply the relationships. All right. And realistically, again, just to go back to the time frame here, I mean, I know it all depends on so many factors and so on, but three years is reasonable to reach a level where self-sustaining and be able to carry your salary and maybe a couple of employees or whatever? I would say three years is the minimum threshold. Okay. Um, All right. The more typical threshold is five years. Okay. So five years to break even. Yeah. All right, so this is uh, someone's going to have to really consider whether they want to do this. It's going to have to be something they love. Well, if they're going to head into the nonprofit arena, yes. Yeah, I'm talking about nonprofit. Yeah, yeah just yeah. To, to compare. So, I mean, this is going to be uh, okay. Now, if you were going to try to do it as a, let me just switch over here for a minute. So you decide, okay, you're going to go to these pharmaceutical companies, but you're not going to set up a 501c. You're going to be a for-profit company, but you still want to get supplies and help foreign uh, countries with all these supplies. How would that change the structure? What would you do then? Well, now you're going to have to come up with a regular business plan. Are you going to sell these products in this foreign country? Let's say the person's new. He doesn't know how, how he's going to do this, but he wants to figure out somehow of making money with this. So maybe with big names sponsoring and they make the money from that and they give it away free or they sell it to the, or maybe both sell it to the countries and have that sponsorship. But what would you recommend they do? They want to do this worthy cause, but they don't want to do it as a, as a nonprofit. They want to do it as a profit company. Well, then they have to go through all the things I would do if I were doing a business plan, starting a business. They, they're going to have to test out their idea. They're going to have to okay. do market research to see if there's even a market for what they want to do. How would you test the idea? The way you test the idea is if you have an idea and you think you have a supplier and you think you have a client, um, you actually have to run a little pilot. I mean, you have to actually do some market research, whether it's interviews, information interviews, whether you are able to accumulate some data uh, at the library for what is going on in that particular market. You have to do something to give you some level of comfort that there's a market here. So maybe a test would be ask for money? Well, well and on the for-profit side, you really just can't ask for money. See, on the nonprofit side, you can ask for money mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. You're, you have a vision and you're trying to do something. Now, on the for-profit side, the bottom line is you have to make money. And so Mm -hmm. you have to either purchase something, you have to be able to sell something, you have to have a product to move or a service to offer. Let me ask you, from the pharmaceutical side for a minute, they're going to give you $10,000 worth of whatever. Is there write-off different giving it to a 501c as opposed to giving it for a profit company and they only paid for the $10,000 worth of stuff $500, then they would just pay tax on the $500? Is that basically the difference? Well, it's going to get treated kind of as a business expense anyway, but from a corporate philosophy standpoint, they like to highlight donations to 501c3s because most companies want to be seen as giving back. It's still a business expense. You can write it off a variety of ways. On the other hand, the other one has to make a business sense to it. It doesn't have to reach the level of corporate giving back. 
if it's just a for-profit, mm-hmm. it has to make business. Is this a good deal? All right. So the one test would be they're going to give me $10,000 worth of product for $500. Okay. And I've contacted uh, some African country, let's say, and they said, oh, for that $10,000 worth of product, we'll give you 2000 bucks." Is that what is that the other end of it at that point? Absolutely. So you're just going to see, well, is there by the time I pay for it to get over there and all the rest of it and customs and thievery yeah. <laughs> might be a problem. In some of these countries may never get to the people. You have to look at that whole picture and say, OK, is there a profit after the after all is said and done? Uh, yes. And is it repeatable? Uh-huh. Just the fact that I make a profit one time doesn't mean that I have the basis for a profitable company. Because you have one sale, you don't have a business. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so now, so once, but you see now this is working. Okay. So there's five hundred two thousand. So now at this point, I'm going to try to get a hold of uh, ten other pharmaceutical companies to see what other products they might want to sell off cheap, and then go through the same process again and say, okay, I got ten more. You know, one company's giving me bandages, one company's giving me uh, sure. old aspirin, whatever. So I've got that. Then I'm going to go back and see if I can find the same organization in Africa or one other one or two or three other, probably better to spread your risk, I guess. Is there three or four more organizations in Africa that will pay me that 2000 for my $500 purchase? Absolutely. Now, that would be your next step. Yeah, and now you've, now you've developed a you know, semi-wholesale distribution network. Now, using this structure, you're saying the other one could normally take five years. Using the profit structure, how quick do you think you're actually doing the same thing as the nonprofit, yeah. but you're using a profit organization because maybe you don't want to have to go through all the red tape of a 501c3 and you know, all the reporting you have to do. And you know, correct, yeah. You might say, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm going to I'm going to give just as much money as much effort, but I'm going to do it through a profit organization. Now uh, we're at the so how long is this going to take? We're at the three year mark now. So it's twice as fast. Yeah. But still, this is not an overnight success field to get into. So. If you're going to approach this kind of operation either way, figure three years. Or do you, is your feeling pretty well any business takes? I believe any business takes three years. Now, if you're buying and selling things, you could be profitable in a day. In and I'd case. make a difference there. You know, we, we, I use two phrases. You know, there is the entrepreneur, and then I believe there's the solopreneur. And what you're now describing is really a solopreneur, somebody who's buying and they're selling. They're maybe doing that over the Internet. The entrepreneur is actually building a business where you're going to need other people involved. You're going to be hiring things, and, and that has more costs related to it. And so you just have to, do, you have to think differently, and that's almost always a three-year. When you're a solopreneur and doing what you just described as an example, uh, yes, that can happen much more quickly and on a different basis. So again, for those listeners that are worried about their future and they're saying, hey, I have to make money in the next few months or whatever, the only really choice is solopreneur. Forget a nonprofit or profit from an entrepreneur standpoint. You don't have three years right now, so or unless you can do it on the side. But I mean, if you really need to produce, uh, you better be going as a solopreneur at this point. I would think so, Ken. Yeah, at this point. Let's just get some just general idea of what do you think would be most helpful for all these folks out there that, that really need to get something going. You know, there are some that, again, don't need the money and they're just bored, but probably the majority need to do something. Well, the first thing I would say is that no matter what we do, nothing happens as quickly as you might imagine it would. And so if you have a plan, you need to start planning today. Don't, don't wait. 
plan today and don't get caught up in if I start today, I'll be making money tomorrow night. Try to be realistic and map out what you really think would happen over, let's just say, the next 12 months if you're a solopreneur and map out a plan. You know, see what it costs, see how much you're going to make, and then see if that plan looks comfortable to you to work it. But you got to have a plan. Right. You got to have a plan. Talk about the five-year period. As someone said, well, it's going to take me five more years to become a doctor, and I'll be five years older then. And of course, the response was, well, how old will you be if you don't do it? Well, well, and and, and you know, you, you do know that sixty is the new forty. So thank God. So so you know, I just don't see the problem there. Right. Okay. So age is so okay. Age is not a barrier to is what you're saying because, no. I mean, I'm sixty six. Yeah. And I feel like I'm just beginning. I'm uh, this whole thing that I'm doing. I'm just totally excited about because I'm trying to boil down for people. Well, what are the real ways of thinking like an entrepreneur that will work for me. And the problem is, I think a lot of times, a person will read one book and that is how that person thinks and that's how he approached it. But it's not going to work for you. But there might be some things in there that will work for you and you need some from that guy. And, you know, I think you need more than, of course, their argument is, if you don't do it all all my way, then don't don't come to me crying when you fail. (laughs) Yeah, I do think there are certain characteristics that are true Mm -hmm. for entrepreneurs and solopreneurs that are pretty consistent. I I think almost all solopreneurs and entrepreneurs are more risk accepting than most people. I think all solopreneurs and entrepreneurs are more willing to have a persistence or a tenacity. And that's a real key there. To to, to keep at it. And and so you have to be willing to embrace risk and you have to be persistent. Those two things, to me, cut across all the books and everything else, regardless of what your product or service or model might be. And just to talk about the risk factor, I think that this is something people maybe didn't consider years ago because it wasn't such a big factor, but it's sure one now. And that is you're taking a risk when you go work for someone, too. They may close up. They may fire you at the time of year. You can't. Maybe you're great at fishing, and they fire you at the end of fishing season. <laughs> Type of thing, yeah, you know what I mean? Exactly. So working for someone else is a risk too. There's no question. In the last since since 2000, especially the crash, we live in what I would call a more volatile work environment. Most people aren't going to work for an organization for 25 years anymore. And so yes, there is more volatility in the normal workplace. And the question would come: Is is that any less or more volatility than doing something entrepreneurial or solo? And I would say no. The other risk is is that people, um, when you're a solopreneur or an entrepreneur, that weekly paycheck that someone else is giving you for work that you do is not there. And so you have to measure your cost and your risk financially differently. Even though the risk financially is, is, is existent over in the workforce side, it, it tends not to bubble to the top as much because you don't think about it as much. Absolutely. As one entrepreneur was telling me, he said, I can phone like crazy and get a sponsor for what I'm doing that would pay 500 a week. You know, I, I, if I really look for it and try, I'm going to find a sponsor that's going to do that. And that's all the, the employee is going to probably pay. employer is going to pay me. So why would I want to work for the employer? <laughs> exactly. Was, 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 was his viewpoint. Cause, and again, I don't know where the multiple is. But I was just—I interviewed an accountant recently, and he says, 
on the lower end, if someone's making like $15 an hour, the multiple is usually four times. So if you're not making a company $60 an hour, they're not going to pay you the 15 And of course, my question is, well, then why do I need them? <laughs> they're the middleman and, you know, I can go make 30 or <laughs> whatever, but I can do far better on my own. And there's really no more risk. You know, the person that hires me is going to fire me when the when the job's over, just like my boss. My bosses might wake up in a bad mood one, one morning and fire me. So there's no security. No, no. Uh, there's a false security in working for someone. No, it, it just takes a, you know, it just takes a little different mindset, you know, that persistence and the risk orientation. Um, but, uh, and I'll add a third word, when, you, when you're on your own, especially as a solopreneur, um, all initiative is self-driven. There's no uh, mm-hmm. there's no external mm-hmm. force to give you that initiative. So you have to generate your own initiative every day. Right. So the question is, either you're going to get the whip out on yourself or you're going to give the whip to the boss so he can whip you. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty aptly put, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're going to work. And if you don't produce, he's going to get rid of you. Just like your company will fail, you're going to fail with him. So there's really no difference. And he's the middleman taking three quarters of your pay. Exactly. As a, I mean, that's the way it looks to me. But again, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. I've really never worked for anyone for you know, any length of time. I mean, maybe a couple of years here and there in my whole life. Yeah. You know, I was always either on commission, like a solopreneur or, or starting something new, entrepreneur. And it was either I went out and produced something, something got sold, or I didn't get paid. And of course, I had three kids and, we, you know, and a family, a wife to support. And so there wasn't, I had to do some things I didn't want to do at times. But the boss is going to make you do some things you don't want to do at times, too. Absolutely true. So there's no escape in this life that way. But but like you say, the self-discipline is where the problem is, right? Mm-hmm. If you can't make yourself get up every day at 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock like the boss is going to make you, then your business is probably not going to make it either. You know, you couldn't discipline yourself. And, of course, if you don't show up at 9 o'clock at work, that doesn't work either. Right, right. So either way, you fail. So you better to be your own boss <laughs> and fail for yourself if you're going to fail rather than than having someone else show you the door. The world will show you the door fast enough if what you're doing isn't producing. No, absolutely true. Yeah. You know, it'll, it'll happen that way. All right. How can people get a hold of you, Steve, and, and what do you offer? Do you do any consulting, personal consulting or group consulting? Or I, do, I do do consulting, and, and they can certainly get a hold of me through my email address. What's that? That is havenwall at gmail.com. I do do help people who are starting businesses work out business plans and things of that nature. Also, through our foundation, we do training on business growth and entrepreneurship uh, under our foundation umbrella. I have a um, we're an affiliate of the Kaufman Foundation in Kansas City, who has spent their whole foundation's time on entrepreneurism. So we have some good materials uh, if people want more formal training in entrepreneurship or if they already have a business they want to grow. Where do they get a hold of you for that? They can get a hold of me for that at is at s Richardson at cerritos.edu. And Cerritos is C-E-R-R-I-T-O-S dot E-D-U. Dot E-D-U. Mm-hmm. And the Havenwell, how did you spell that? Havenwall, H-A-V-E-N-W-A-L at gmail.com. Okay. And, and right. so for all your listeners saying, well, what? that is the weirdest email name I've ever heard. <laughs> and, and, and so all, the, all your listeners can have a little laugh. I still have a 
unfinished fictional fantasy novel sitting in my bedroom drawer of which one of the mythical places in my book is called Havenwall. And so I came up with that many, many years ago, and I've kept it because evidently nobody in email wants that name. And so I have it on a variety of accounts. So yep, no competition. No there. competition on that one <laughs> whatsoever. And, and of course, my book is available on Amazon. So and the name of the book again the, is? The name of the book is Become a Better Leader in 30 Days. Perfect. Now, by the way, I'm going to put all these notes on the show notes. So if people come to the website, they will see all this underneath your interview and, 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 and the recording. So they'll be able to get it. But some people, are they may never go over to the website and they just hear it. And they're going to just email you. So sure, I want to make sure, sure they, they, they got it this way. That's great. All right. That was fantastic and, uh, and very informative. And I think the big thing is what you showed us is that some things take time. You're not going to make, if you need to make money tomorrow, the only choice you got is solopreneur or working for someone else. I think so, yeah. There, there's not going to be any shortcut for, for nonprofits and so on because of all the time to set it up. and Especially you know, in the nonprofit it's, world, even in the other world of just entrepreneurship, there is a ramp-up time, and, and they have to be thoughtful about that. All right. Okay, well, one more time. Final words for the... For all the seniors, well, I don't want to use seniors, sorry, wrong word. Uh, <laughs> for, for all our fellow boomers? All the baby boomers. For all of yeah. our fellow boomers, yes. I, I, my final word is that there is never a better time to take a risk than today if there's something that you really want to do. Never let fear stop you from doing something. And there's always a way to find a way. So that's my final thoughts. Very good. I appreciate it. It's been great, Steve. Thanks, Ken. Uh, speaking with you, and we will get this up uh, live on um, iTunes as quick as we can, and I'll let you know. Please, uh, yeah. So that you can let your listeners, if they want to, uh, go over and, l- and listen to it. And uh, thank you again. And I look forward to interviewing you again in uh, maybe a few months or a year, and see what you, what are all the new things you're up to. Well, that would be great. I'd love to uh, another interview with you when we get the second book all done and out. Fantastic. Okay. Super. Thanks, Ken. All right, Steve. Okay. Thank Bye. you. God bless. Bye. Thank you for listening to Income for Baby Boomers with your host, Ken Queen. Helping boomers like you get a business started you can run from your own home. We interview owners of both online and offline businesses, but most importantly, ones that are run by baby boomers. Stay tuned next week for new and exciting businesses that you can start from your home. Until next time, have a profitable and blessed week. Thank you.